in this morning. There's a relationship between what we believe and who we are, between belief, between theology then, and how we act. I am personally convinced that every dilemma, every dispute, every difficulty that people encounter today arises not merely out of a blatant false theology, but a lack of profundity in truthful theology. More than not knowing what we don't know, I think many of us don't even know what we do know. Many people know too little of the gospel to be discerning, but just enough of it to be dangerous. Because we know so little of the gospel, we know little about how to apply that gospel. Far too many of us, or for too many of us, the message of the cross is merely a means to get, to get someone saved. Life between the point of salvation and the point of eternity, though, is considered to be our own. We live it on our own. We live it independent of any influence from God. With our mouths, we might disagree with this, but with our testimony, it is clear that this is how a lot of professing Christians live. We have yet to connect God's truth with the manner in which we live. Although he says it in a different context, Steve Lawson asks some questions. Could it be that we've exchanged theology for methodology? Could it be that we have exchanged biblical preaching for behavior modification? Could it be that we've exchanged scriptures for stories? Or could it be that we've exchanged the supremacy of God for the supremacy of self? We are at a point in which those called upon to proclaim the gospel often don't even know the gospel they're called upon to proclaim. And so I appeal to you this morning to look upon our text with the conviction, deliberating then on the power of the gospel entrusted into our care. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. And I want to bring to you a message that I've called, instead of the power from within, the power from him, living in the power of the gospel. And although I will only expound upon the second part of verse 5 through verse 8, and probably not even that, I want to read once again verses 3 through 8, hoping that by now, reading this three weeks in a row, the same verses, is now becoming ingrained into our minds and written on our hearts. So please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed, in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. You may be seated. Since the death of Christ, every generation has had to contend for the gospel. The passing of one era may cause the death of one heresy, but the birth of the next era causes the emergence of another false teaching, 
making it necessary for the next generation to contend for the gospel once again. In the course of history, in every century, there stand individuals of notoriety in the Christian faith. There are those who have proclaimed the gospel faithfully, and there are those who have defended the gospel faithfully. In the first century, Irenaeus resisted the heresy of Gnosticism. The same thing our letter addresses. In the second century, Tertullian refuted Montanism. In the third century, Athanasius rebuffed Arianism. In the fifth century, Augustine of Hippo refused Pelagianism. And then if you advance forward and skip ahead to the 16th century, you see that Martin, Martin Luther and John Calvin rebuked those followers of humanism. More recently, in the 19th century, Hermann Bavinck refuted Frederick Schleiermacher's advancements of higher criticism and liberalism. And more recently, in the 20th century, it was theologians like R.C. Sproul and J.I. Packer and Francis Schaeffer who resisted postmodernism. If the church is built on the blood of martyrs, as is often said, then I would say it is upheld by pillars, these men and defenders of the gospel of truth. And now, 21 years into the 21st century, it is time for the church to construct a new pillar with those who are so unashamed of the gospel that they are willing to risk their reputations and sacrifice their reputations to ward off the advances of progressivism. We need those who will proclaim a spiritual theology when the world propagates a social policy. We need those who will introduce spiritual transformation when the world institutes a social reformation. And we need those who will impart a spiritual theology to the, or spiritual gospel to the world that indoctrinates with a social gospel. From one century to the next, new social doctrines are introduced but each one quickly, and often quietly, fades away, lasting less than a generation before the giving space to the very next doctrine. Such rapid evolution indicates, then, that these beliefs are not born out of conviction. Rather, they are nothing more than fads. They are trends, trends that last just long enough for the next one to gather enough following and enough influence to supplant the previous one. But as a general population follows one trend and then the next, migrating from one false teaching to the next false teaching to the very next, the gospel remains constant. While each position endures for barely a generation, the gospel has survived from one century to the next, unchanged, unadulterated. The constancy of the gospel displays the capacity of the gospel. The very power of the gospel is shown to, to us by the mere fact that it is transforming lives just as effectively today as it did yesterday and the day before, going on for centuries. Paul writes to the Corinthians, For the word of, cross, of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 24 of that same chapter, he calls the gospel both the power of God and the wisdom of God. The very message that demands our allegiance then contains in its entirety the wisdom of God and the power of God. What a tremendous confidence this truth gives to the believer. To know that what we proclaim is nothing less than the power and wisdom of God. 
And that instills into us a desire to share it more frequently and more boldly. Because what we preach to the world is not the ever-changing word of men, but the everlasting word of God. I am certain that our unwillingness to courageously share this truth is because we're not seriously convinced by what is entrusted to our care. If we truly valued the gospel, if we were genuinely persuaded that it is both the power and the wisdom of God, we would not be able to shut our mouths about it. That it would always be the thing that we're talking about. How could we keep possession of this truth and not share it with those who need it and still maintain a clear conscience before God? Second, if we truly valued people, why are we so content to allow them to eternally perish when God has given us stewardship over the very truth that could change their eternal destination? May we be convinced by our text this morning that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And I want to look at four aspects that show us God's power through the gospel. I want you to note first that the gospel has a power to impart. In the last half of verse 5, it says, the Apostle Paul writing, Of this, the hope, you have heard before the word of truth, word of the truth, the gospel. The power of the gospel is seen in the ability to capture the hearts of individuals and rescue them from the depths of despair by imparting hope. From this text, we can extract really three aspects of hope, beginning first with the matter of hope. This message can only bring hope because of the content of the message, the matter of hope or the content of hope. It instills a confidence despite attack after attack. This message has never been destroyed it has never been disproven. It has never been discredited. Even more relevant and important is the reliability of Christ because he is the object of hope, the object of faith. Not only has the message endured for generation after generation, but more importantly, Christ has proven himself faithful. He's proven himself worthy of one's faith because by his death, he showed himself faithful to God. And by his resurrection, he showed himself acceptable to God. Living with hope is possible because the message, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, has been proven truthful. And the object of hope, Christ, has been proven reliable. Hope is dependent upon the redemptive work of Christ, his brutal death, and his brilliant resurrection in part hope because it brings reconciliation with God. Without that, without this reconciliation, we exist separated from God. We exist separated specifically in our sin, unable to offer him anything, which is something we'll talk about or continue talking about Wednesday night when we discuss the acidity of God. Instead, it is by Christ's work that reunites us with God. And only then is a believer able to live a life of hope, waiting expectantly for, eternal, for eternity, living in the presence of our creator. 
Paul describes this reconciliation in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That is the hope that we may live in reconciliation with God. And notice that in receiving this gift of reconciliation, believers then are called to a ministry of reconciliation. They are not called to division, but reconciliation, because that is where hope lies, in being reconciled to him. Verse 19 ends with this conviction, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God has delegated us as the delivers of this message. We are to care for it. We are to commend it to others. Based on that, I ask you two questions. First, do we drive people to Christ or away from Christ? By our testimony, are people awestruck by the power of the gospel in our own lives? And do they desire to know more of this power and more of Christ and thus more of God? Or does our testimony cause them to question why anyone would bother with Christ at all? The second question is like it. Does this hope of reconciliation drive us to Christ? Does this glorious gospel of hope stir our hearts to know him more intimately? When we see this magnificence of hope, it's no wonder that the Colossians then respond with the attitudes of faith and an attitude of love in verse 4, as we discussed last week in our message. It is the very hope that induces their love and make up their testimony that Paul has just been shared to about. At one point, he will warn the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 6.1, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. I dare us not to take advantage of God's grace and God's kindness by receiving his grace lightly. A second aspect of hope is the method of hope. The method, the means by which it is imparted. The verse indicates that the Colossians heard about this hope. We know that God could have chosen any method that he wanted to in order to impart that hope because any method was certainly at his disposal as the, disposal, as the all-powerful all God. But not only does our God impart hope through the gospel, but he imparts the gospel through oral proclamation. We often hear the quote, Preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. I tell you that you will always have to use words. Our testimony may verify the gospel, but it is by our words that we impart the gospel. The method that God has chosen to transmit his hope in the gospel is orally. One person sharing with another or sharing with a group of people. 
This means that if we are to have any influence with the gospel of hope, then we have to have contact with others. We must associate with unbelievers. We cannot lock ourselves away in hopes that we will remain uninfluenced by the world's sin. The reality is that even in isolation, you and I already carry the gene for sin. The only thing a confinement achieves is it keeps us from obedience by not allowing us to share with others. The Great Commission is dependent upon the oral teaching of God's truth. The Thessalonians are commended because it says when they received the word of God, they heard it and accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really was, the word of God, which is at work in believers. Right there is partly the power of the gospel because it is work at work in believers. The Thessalonians simply accepted and believed what they had received. Those who have obtained the gospel are now called upon to preach the gospel. Romans 10, 14. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The Colossian church has heard of this hope because someone else shared it with them. Verse 7 tells us that it was Epaphras, that Epaphras took the opportunity to share that hope with them. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 brings an even more important implication to this. Reading, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. To share the gospel, then, is to share the power of God. People are saved not by our words, but by the power of the message and the conviction of the Spirit. That should bring further confidence to our witness, because no longer are we responsible for the outcome. No longer are we responsible for the response of people. We are simply responsible to share that message. We need not worry what they may think about us, we don't need to worry about what they think about God. And we don't even need to worry about what they may think about the message. We should find it sufficient enough to know that God's message is imparted by us sharing, and specifically by us sharing it verbally. And that upon sharing it, the work then becomes the work of the Spirit. Finally, the last aspect of imparting hope is the manner of hope. Hope is conveyed by truth. The text tells us that the Colossians heard of this hope in the word of truth. The gospel is not imparted by a word of faith, the word of encouragement, or the word of eloquence. It is imparted by the word of truth. While false teaching is infiltrating the church and in, in Colossae, Paul reminds them that they've heard of this truth, that in receiving the gospel, they received God's truth, which is what exactly he calls it in Ephesians 1.13. The gospel is the truth of God. If it is not true, then it cannot be the gospel. We hear that so many people are on a quest for truth. They're searching for what it is. 
And in today's world, that's really a fruitless journey because the world says truth is relative. It's what I want it to be. So there is no need to search endlessly because absolute truth really is contained in Christ. Christ is the way, the truth, the life. David Garland says it this way, we do not search for the truth. We start from it. Christianity is not simply one of many options. It is the only option. The truth of God does not need our verification. It only needs our declaration. If we return to 1 Thessalonians once again, we see in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, in the midst of when he's thanking the Thessalonians, much like he does with the Colossians here, Paul says, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Emerging from these verses, we see that truth must be proclaimed, but it also must be proclaimed in the right way. It cannot be done deceitfully, but according to how God intends it to be conveyed. Neither can it be done arrogantly. Instead, it must be shared for the right reason, to please God. That's what it says in verse 4. And finally, it must be proclaimed directly. Doesn't mean not it lacks love, but it means that when we're confronting a person, we do so truthfully, not with flattery. That is what the gospel does. It confronts people with who they are, and it exposes them to their need for the gospel because it exposes their sin. Without this truth, there is no hope because there would be no need for salvation. Instead, the gospel reminds us of who we are, taking us all the way to the abyss by confronting with truth our depravity and sin. But it doesn't leave us there. The truth also brings us to eternity by showing us not just our desperate need, but by imparting hope, by showing us our marvelous Savior and bringing us to reconciliation with God. Where there is no truth, there can be no hope. The power of the gospel is seen in its ability to impart hope to the helpless. It is imparted by speaking genuine truth in a genuine way in people's lives. To those who are confused, to those who are despairing, to those who are lost, the gospel rescues them. To those who have an attitude like the Thessalonians then, willing to accept God's truth, they will have eternal life. Such hope transforms a person's life because rather than giving a temporary happiness, this hope brings about eternal joy, permanent joy. It is not grounded in the world, but in the next, giving believers something to anticipate, something to wait for expectantly. Let us not forget, though, the gospel is not just for everyone else. 
The gospel is something we each need individually as much as anyone else, because we too are helpless. We have nothing that we can offer the Lord, nothing that we can give him for our salvation. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can do to buy it. We are helpless. Instead, we must trust the work of Christ and hope in the future that he has promised us. The effect of this transforms who we are. I think about it this way. Thinking about a bride and groom who will wait their wedding day. What kind of people do you find? Meaning in the bride and groom, what kind of people are they? First, there are people without a doubt. Even though the marriage has not occurred, they are assured that that moment will come and they move forward accordingly. They are people consumed by one another. In fact, they are so consumed by one another that regardless of whatever circumstance they encounter in those moments that lead up to the wedding, they brush it off. Dealing with it is just necessary and they simply move on. It has no bearing on whether or not they're going to be married. In many ways, they ignore their own needs so that they can focus on the needs of the other. They are consumed by one another. They are also content in one another. Do you notice how quickly a young couple is willing to set aside the things they enjoy for the time with their future spouse? Perhaps some of you remember that in your own lives before you got married, as you were dating. People will change their habits. They will forego events, and they will forsake the spending of time with friends and family so that they can spend time with one another. They pass that time together that they may know one another more intimately, more deeply. They are content in one another. And all of that leads to a steady, stable joy that is notable in their lives. Again, this doesn't mean they don't encounter trials. But rather than mere happiness that is relative to the circumstances, the joy is consistent and constant. I think we've all seen this in young couples. Hope for the wedding day with our Lord should have the same effect. And the bride of Christ, the church, awaits the wedding day with the Lord. I fear that believers are in danger of allowing their hope to become dormant. Many see it as necessary for salvation, but not relevant again until either Christ's return is near or their own impending death is near. I would say instead of being consumed by our Christ, we are consumed by our circumstances. And if the circumstances are not what we want, then you can probably expect a lot of us to, to fight until we get what we want in our own way. But hope brings us to Christ, to be consumed by Christ and not our circumstances. I would also say instead of being content with our status before God, we are more content with our status before the world. Unlike the engaged couple who spends hour upon hour with one another, most of us have a hard time even giving up an hour of work or activities to know the bridegroom better, to know Christ better. We say, come to church on Sunday, and then think and say, okay, I'll allow that. But ask the person to come another time. No, that's disrespectful of my time. 
ask us to spend a few minutes in prayer and a few moments in our Bibles, and we lack the time. Ask us to spend hours watching sports, and somehow our schedule has opened up. We're too busy building up our status before the world and neglecting our status before Christ. But hope brings us to a contentment with our status in Christ. I also tell you that instead of being eternally joyful, we are temporarily satisfied. With too much frequency, we allow ourselves to be temporarily satisfied by the very things that scripture tells us will pass away. Power, prestige, prominence, and plenty are driving a person's satisfaction. Even as Christians, we say with our mouths that that is not the case, that we have no concern for these things. But the majority of professing Christians, by their lifestyle, show that indeed that's how they live their lives. Hope brings us to eternal joy. I hope in Christ changes everything. It changes our personality so that our character becomes more like Christ. It changes our priorities. So that which has meaning in our life is not what we want, but what he wants. Allow me to close with this from Scott Hafman. In the midst of an ever-changing world, the good news is that the life of faith is anchored by the power, provisions, and promises of God. Circumstances may change, but the future is as sure as the character of God himself. No matter what happens, those who trust in God hope in his word. Let's pray. Our Father God, we come before you. Looking indeed at hope. Father, you are the author of hope. You are the giver of hope. And you are the sustainer of hope. Without you, there is no hope. And so, Lord, we need to be grounded in you. We need to be coming to you through your gospel, Lord. Father, forgive us when we do lack hope. Forgive us for those moments that give evidence of our feeble faith, Lord. And Father, we pray that you would just instill into us a sturdy hope, a hope that that would draw us to you every day. Father, use our circumstances to make us hope for you, to make us long for you every day. Do not permit us to be content here in this world, but Father, draw us to you. Help us to fixate our minds on you. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, may that be where our minds go, as Colossians 3.1 says. May that be our hope the hope of an eternity of reconciled relationship with you. May that be the driving factor, not just at salvation and not just at eternity, but may that impact who we are now. And so, Father, we ask that your spirit continue to transform us into your image by imparting a stable and sustainable hope in our lives. We commit all these things to you, giving you praise and honor. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.